For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit MyPillow.com. Use the code word REBEL for a discount on pillows, sheets, pet beds, and everything else at MyPillow.com. Woo! Rebels, it's that time. Can you feel it? Are you ready to be a great parent? Do you want to feel like you're back on your honeymoon? Well, we believe in you and God believes in you. Rebels, it's time to join the rebellion. It's time for Rebel Parenting. What's up, Rebels? Hope you're having a great day. Thank you for all the birthday wishes last week. I totally appreciate it. I had a great birthday. On to another year. Good podcast today, sponsored by Save the Storks at SaveTheStorks.com and Blinkist, Blinkist.com slash Rebel Parenting, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T.com slash Rebel Parenting for a free week. It is 15-minute summaries of nonfiction books. Man, do I love that service. Great podcast today, Moms on the Mic, The Atomic Mom, Producer K, talking again to our friend Vicki Courtney about conversations with our sons. I think sometimes moms struggle to talk to their sons, especially if they weren't raised around boys, if they didn't have brothers. Um, Laura obviously had four of them, so it's a little easier for her, but I think sometimes women struggle talking to boys or wondering how to reach them, and this is a great conversation. Without any further ado, here's our friend Vicki Courtney on today's edition of Rebel Parenting. Hello. Hello, all you rebels out there. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Moms on the Mic. Here we are again. <laughs> we are. And we're with Vicki Courtney today, who we have had on the show before, talking about conversations that we've had or need to have with our daughters. Mm-hmm. And we thought we would come back and talk about more in depth with conversations that we can have with our sons. So thank you, Vicki, for coming on the show again today. Well, thanks for having me back. We appreciate it. All right. So we're going to dig right in. Let's just start with a generic. What are the top five conversations that you talked about in your book and what you are finding just on a day to day basis with your grandkids and what you're seeing that we need to have a conversation with our boys? Sure, sure. So, you know, just to give you a little background, the conversations in the boys book are the same five basic conversations as I share in the girls book. However, the chapters that support each of those conversations obviously are going to be different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, more geared to obviously the challenges facing each each gender. So the first conversation is don't let the culture define you. Mm -hmm. And that deals with, you know, just the pressure that our kids feel to measure up to the culture's expectations. And so I know when I was on the show last, we talked about our girls and, you know, the pressures they feel with body image issues and all of that. Mm-hmm. So for guys, it's a little bit different and not that they aren't experiencing some of those issues, you know, to that degree, but there's other challenges, especially in dealing with like, what is manhood today? I know we mm-hmm. see yes. this brand of, you know, toxic masculinity that oh, don't, get, don't get us started. started. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It's the definitely Dobsons a hot jump topic on that one. as well. Yeah. yeah. And so you see the toxic masculinity and then you see the really wimpy kind of, you know, soft, feminine sort of man. And so I know a lot, you know, as moms, even grandmothers out there, we're left scratching our heads saying, okay, obviously there's a bit of an identity crisis when it comes to, you know, well, who are boys supposed to be today and the pressures put on them. And and you know what, even the church at times, like, I feel like we've gotten it wrong 
uh, many times. And so we have to go back and do some correction there. And so that's a conversation to have. Conversation. Can you expand on that? What do you think that the church sure. is doing? I think we're doing a lot better. But I think in the past, you know, now as a grandmother, I feel like I have a little bit of history, my rearview mirror to see how we've handled things. But I'm going to pick on myself here. One of the things, because, you know, these books are revised and updated or expanded. And so I wrote them 10 years ago, the girl book, uh, the daughter's book, eight years ago, the son's book. And I'll pick on myself. I went back and I reread a lot of the things I read. I wrote originally about masculinity and thought, yeah, that's it's pretty harsh. I mean, mm. I talked about the Marlboro man, you know, I'm like, okay, well, that's probably not an ideal role model, but you know, <laughs> it was in sharp contrast to that sort of hipster skinny jean guy, you know, yeah. and I poked a lot of fun at that. And then, you know, all of a sudden one of my sons started dressing that way, but not in a feminine way. And so, you know, you're like having to, to really look, okay, what's important out there? What really, you know, do we need to be talking about with our guys? And so I would just, again, and picking on myself, I had to evaluate where am I coming from in the, in regard to this and really soften it up in the sense of being reminded that the ultimate role model for our guys is Jesus Christ, right? Yes. Yeah. And the same man that overturned the money changers tables yeah. and, you know, was the same man that wept with Mary and Martha over the loss of their brother, you know, Lazarus. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you see two very different versions or, you know, uh, brands, if you will, of manhood. And so I think sometimes uh, long answer or short, you know, long answer here, but uh, to a short question, yeah. I think we've gotten it wrong and maybe portraying to our boys you know, big boys don't cry. You don't express your feelings. Mm. You know, the truth is really somewhere in the middle, isn't it? So yeah. we have to set that up. We forget that David played the harp, you know, I mean, things right. like that. And so it's not always this rugged football playing, you know, tent camping, go out hunting, you know, sort mm-hmm. of version of man. We have to be careful that there's a lot of guys out there that don't meet that description, but they're just as manly as anybody else. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. I was just talking to my son today about he doesn't like football. And it was so cute. He just said, I don't like the competition aspect of it, but I like football. And so it was a good distinction for me just to hear from him. Like, oh, that's awesome, son. I'm glad you made that distinction for yourself. And now he can play Mm. and he just doesn't like it when people get competitive. And then if he makes a mistake, Mm. that it all falls upon his shoulders. Right. How he's interpreting the game, at least. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, it was. And I was when you were saying is somewhere in the middle, like it's unique and it's different but I feel like even today just to say that there is a man and a woman and that there are gender differences Mm -hmm. is a rebel statement yes (laughs) right right what we're up against you know and I talk about that in that conversation because this was new information Mm -hmm. since eight years ago you know eight years ago you really didn't have at least it wasn't as prevalent as it is today this whole you know all that confusion that's out there now with our tweens and our teens and trying mm-hmm. to figure out you know am I male am I female and so I definitely cover that because the awesome. statistics on that are really disturbing in fact mm-hmm. one survey said that 69 percent of teens ages 13 to 18 said it is acceptable to be born one gender and feel like another this is 69 percent and 33 percent of teenagers today. This is in the Gen Z generation. Uh, a little bit different here. We've talked about that last time than the millennials. 33 percent. So one out of every three of them surveyed said gender is primarily based on what a person feels like. Feels. And wow. it can change day to day, I heard. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
That's wild. Yeah. Well, and I think if we're going to reach this next generation, if I want to reach this next generation, we're really going to have to grapple with those ideas. Right. We are. Step in that conversation. Yeah. And again, this is why one of the reasons I wrote the book. I just, I'm, mm. I'm not a bury your head in the sands kind of mom. Yeah. I wasn't that way with my own kids. I, I'm sure I won't be that way with my grandkids. They'll get the conversations from Mimi as well as their parents. <laughs> and so, you know, I just think that we have to, like you said, tackle this stuff head on, not be afraid to talk about these tough issues because whether we like it or not, they're hearing this stuff. Yeah. You know, think about it in terms of, our teenagers right now in school, two or one out of three of their peers feels like their gender is whatever they feel like at that moment, yeah. one out of three. Mm-hmm. And so they're dealing with it, certainly, you know, on an everyday basis. And we need to not pretend like it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. So continuing on with the conversations. So the second one you talk about is guarding your heart. So how does that play out with our sons? So that conversation is where I tucked, you know, everything in as far as like uh, digital distractions. I have a whole chapter on pornography. Not that that's not intersecting our daughter's lives. It is in some ways, but not to the degree that it is our son's lives. I would say that conversation really, really is it concentrates on you know, it can be everything from video gaming to pornography mm. to, you know, just the digital just distractions that are out there and even beyond even digital distractions. But it's such a huge, honestly, I think that, you know, there could have been an entire book written on that alone. Oh, yes, uh, sure. There was just so much that I wanted to fold into the three short chapters that support that conversation to guard their hearts. You know, but I did my best to put the what I felt was the most important stuff and, and to really, you know, so for example, with moms, because I know a lot of us are like, oh gosh, you know, it's hard enough. We have to have that whole birds and the bees talk with our mm-hmm. kids. And especially like, are we supposed to be talking to our sons? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think I talked to my sons. My husband was great at all that, but by default of the fact that I spent more time with them at home, yeah. Yeah. I was taking them around to all their many different activities. Mm-hmm. I decided early on in the game, you know, I'm going to be talking to my boys about these things. I have two sons and a daughter. They're all grown at this point with children of their own. Uh, praise God. Hallelujah. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm on the other side of this. I'm going to offer you hope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank they're, you. They're on the other side of this. And so I decided, you know, that time was valuable and I wasn't going to remain silent. And so I just had a really comfortable relationship with my boys talking about these things. And they knew early on from the time they were young that there was really nothing was off limits to talk about. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. one of those things was, you know, just the temptation to look at pornography. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think moms are afraid to even go there in the sense of acknowledging it because there's a part of us that's like, we don't want to know. We don't want to know if you've seen it. We don't want to know if you want to see it. You know, of course they do. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was one of the ways I handled it with my boys. I was like, I imagine most everybody out there wants to look at something like that if it crosses your path. But here's what I want to do. I want to sit you down. I want to talk to you on a regular basis just about what's going on in your brain Mm. when I see something like that. And so really the why behind God's standards, you know, we I think we talked about that on the last show, not just to tell our kids, hey, you know, God's word says we shouldn't do that or Mm -hmm. that's wrong. uh, But to go a step further and to unpack it with them and to explain, well, this Mm -hmm. is why. God doesn't think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. And we don't hear enough out there today in the sense of what's going on brain chemistry wise. What is it doing to our young men? I will tell you that probably writing that part of the book gave me the most angst Mm -hmm. out of writing both books because Mm -hmm. 
just in reading all the statistics, there was there were times where I thought, where's the hope? Yeah, right. Yeah, where's right. For sure. Mm-hmm. When you see how many boys are looking at pornography Getting and men targeted. for that matter, and even if they didn't want to, yeah, you know, it's just it finds them. It's just so easily accessible, or even when they're not looking for it, mm-hmm. you know, there it is. And so. I can't remember if we talked about before that, you know, with our uh, boys, especially their brains are really half baked. I hate to to use that term, but (laughs) they're half baked, you know, and so the the frontal lobe is the last thing really to develop. And Mm -hmm. studies show that in our teenage girls, it's, you know, right around late teens uh, where that frontal lobe fully develops and they're able to kind of connect, you know, consequences with actions Mm -hmm. and that sort of a thing. But with our sons, it's much later. And those of us who married in our young 20s, we know that, that our husband's frontal lobes were still in the process of developing, if we can say that. And so this is where both my boys married young. They married at 22. And, you know, some studies say the frontal lobe for the male doesn't develop until like mid to late 20s. And both my daughter-in-laws have confirmed that to be true. And, and, and so <laughs> I, I, I told them, I was like, yeah, there you go. You know, and I used to tell my boys, you know, here's the deal. Like, until your frontal lobe is fully developed, God has appointed me to be your frontal lobe. And so nice. whatever that and so then when they married at 22, I kind of handed that duty over to their wives and said, you are hereby in charge of being their frontal lobe. I'm off the clock now. Yeah. So. That's awesome. That I like that good. your distinction you said at the very beginning about having regular conversations with our sons. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes, especially as they get older in the teen years, I'm watching my son slowly become a teen. And I want to pull back and let him, you know, connect with his dad a lot and I'm with him more. I take him to school. I take him to the activities. I'm with his friends more, you know, and I think it's just having that regular dialogue. I think lots of moms might not even have that established yet, but I think that's the key in order to have these intimate conversations Mm -hmm. about pornography with them in a way that's advantageous for both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even let them know on the front end and say, you know, hey, this is going to at times, it's going to feel kind of uncomfortable. And you have to know it's super uncomfortable for me too. Mm -hmm. But, you know, here's the deal. God appointed me to be a a good steward and raising you and part of my responsibility or my job and your father's as well of dad's on duty, you know, is to make sure you know some important things about some important topics that are out there. And, you know, one of the things that we're up against with this, and this is one of the I think I had to take a break at at this point when I saw the statistic, but it was actually a a Barna survey. And it found that when teens and young adults were asked to rank a series of actions, you know, it was everything from like lying, stealing, adultery, you know, all those on a scale of, you know, well, I think they gave them like always okay, usually okay, neither wrong nor okay, usually wrong and always wrong. The Gen Z teens that took the survey ranked not recycling as more immoral than viewing pornography. Right. And that was just shocking to me. I I know, I think we talked about that on the last show. And so that's what we're up against, you know, just to let them know is that, you know, this generation just kind of has a lot of kind of apathy toward it. Like it's, well, it's not really hurting anyone, which is not true. And we talk about that in that chapter and, you know, the long-term effects of this is it's just profound. And a lot yes. of what the studies are beginning to find and uh, with our young men and as 
they move on into young adulthood and carry this problem or addiction with them, you know, it has serious repercussions for many, many years to follow, and especially if it's not addressed at mm-hmm. some point. Mm. Yeah. Do you happen to know how quickly someone can advance into like they saw it versus having an addiction? addiction. I was just wondering. I don't, but I do remember writing in the chapter, um, and it was a couple of books that I read, just experts. One of them was even a neuroscientist Mm -hmm. that, you know, talks a lot about what's going on in the brain and that whole addiction component that you're referencing. And he mentioned that if addiction runs in your family, and see, my family, I've got, you know, family members with addictions and that sort of thing. So if addiction runs family, then you're going to have, of course, a higher likelihood that, you know, because there, I think the statistic was something like 10% of boys, even girls looking at pornography on a regular basis will be in the full blown addict or addict category. Yeah. And so, you know, and in talking to uh, my youngest son has been a wealth of information for me, and he actually has this testimony. And I share in the book, uh, he even include we include in the back of the book, and he asked me if it'd be okay. And it was more than okay with me, but mm. this is a story. And he wrote a note to mothers, like an additional conversation from a son who had struggled with this, like to mothers like yourselves who are right. trying to raise boys. And it was so, for, I bawled like a baby when I read mm. it. You know, it was literally right before I turned the book in. And it was so incredibly powerful. But, you know, one of the things he said that I'll never forget is the conversations were definitely important. And you can imagine how I beat myself up because I'm sitting there right. thinking, okay, I don't know many moms. I'm not to pat myself on the back here, but who eight years ago, 10 years ago, were talking to their boys about the brain chemistry component with all right. of this. Right. And yet, even as I'm talking to my youngest son, and I had the most candid conversations with him, I would come to find out later that this was something that he struggled with, mm-hmm. something it, to the point to where it almost destroyed his marriage. Mm-hmm. And so I share that, you know, in the book and the, his story. And, you know, I know some of the moms may be listening, thinking, okay, what? Well, how is it that the lady who wrote about this, her son, you know, what hope do we have at this point? You know, and, <laughs> and that's where I'd share that, you know, one of the things my son passed along that was so valuable as he look back is that one of the reasons he reached out to get help was that he said that in addition to having these conversations with him, I modeled to him that all but for the grace of God go each and every one of us, mm-hmm. that we are all sinners, that we all, that you know, no sin is too big for God's grace to cover. And, you know, that we can always come boldly before God's grace. And so, you know, in a nutshell, what he was saying was, you taught me that I was going to fall down, Mm -hmm. but that you showed me how I could get back up by coming to God and taking the hard step, like getting the help that, you know, he needed in regard to that. And he's in a great place today. And two, over two years past this, he's leading a men's group at his church. He's meeting one-on-one with numerous young men who have the same mm-hmm. problem or addiction. And, you know, he tells me that he thinks that the problem is epidemic. Yes, and, oh, for sure. You know, that for if, sure. He really, and they, he and his wife are raising a son. He just turned one. And, you know, it's funny to hear my son say things now like, you know, yeah, I, my son will never have a smartphone until, you know, he's in college or mm-hmm. I know how to lock a phone or I, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, you picked on me so much when <laughs> I was my best to draw those boundaries. Yeah. But now you've been that parent. And, but he, you know, said the best 
policy is he'll be speaking very openly with his son about just his struggle at some point. And, mm-hmm. you know, and he wants, he had, he really, I think at some point will end up with a ministry of his own because he said that he sees so many Christian young men who don't understand that they can truly be free from this. Right. And it's a he won't sugarcoat it. He said, it's a lot of hard work to be free. Mm-hmm. It's a full-time job for the rest of your life to remain free. But mm-hmm. he said, you know, a lot of them have just accepted that, well, everybody's addicted. Everybody has this problem. And one of the things I can't remember if I put in the book that was discouraging to him is along the way when he would confess to a, you know, a mentor he had in his high school years. And then in college, it was a young life leader. They all kind of slept it off like, yeah, I'll join the club, you know, and I'm like, uh, if that's action our sons are getting when they actually reach out to someone for help yeah. or for accountability. And even in the church, mm-hmm. you know, he met with staff at churches that, you know, same thing. The men would say, well, yeah, if I had a nickel for every man that came in here, every young man. Oh, and that so makes I, me angry. Yeah. Me I think we need to get angry about it. We really do. Yeah. So we need mm-hmm. to, you know. Again, I'm just going to invite myself back. Have me back, and we will talk the whole time just <laughs> um, on this. Oh, and get right. super angry together because we need to see some changes out there. And uh, have my son back for that matter. If yeah, he's open to be, it. That'd be great. He's the first person to tell you that we're we're really getting it all wrong in the church as far as the way we address it. And and one I of bet. the things that really stuck with me that he said is that you know you might hear a sermon once a year. You know, in the sense of, you know, well, yeah, you know, if this is something you struggle with, confess it to a trusted friend mm-hmm. and memorize these scripture verses. And he said, Mom, you don't understand. So many boys and men are so far past. Like it, it's compulsive at that point. Right. Yeah. Like they, addiction. They cannot, to tell them to stop is like telling an alcoholic to quit drinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good you luck. Got to come at it from the same angle that we would approach drug addiction or alcohol addiction. And not just expect that if we, you know, do a sermon a year, or mm-hmm. tell our sons or our men, you know, hey, yeah, that's wrong. It's sin. You should stop it. Mm-hmm. But, oh, there's a light bulb's going to go off. They're going, yeah, I think I will. You know, <laughs> and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. So. Oh, I had a pastor call us and he was talking about how the young people in his congregation weren't getting married. And I was like, well, do you think there might be a porn epidemic going on in your congregation? (laughs) And he did not expect me to say that. And I was just like, well, there's needs are getting met somewhere else. The fact that your young people in your church, the 20 somethings, Mm -hmm. aren't choosing each other, aren't choosing outside people either. There was just no marriages occurring. Right. And so I was like, well, take a look at that. And of course, it was more the, well, I don't know. Yeah, I hear that. I've heard that before. Or, Well, and you talk about that in your book a little bit of the decline of of teen sex. Yes, I was just about to mention that. Oh, wow. Yeah. you know, we look at, we're saying, we're so happy about that. Of course we are. We, yeah. you know, for years we've waited for that, that statistic to go down oh, no. and, and it did. And now why do you think yeah. the rise in pornography? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, oh. you know, what boy out there is when they given both alternatives are like, okay, if I don't have to, you know, mess with the emotional aspect right. of a relationship, right? right. And all that comes with that, mm-hmm. then, you know, you give them the choice and of course we're going to see that teen sex has gone down because it is like you said is epidemic yes and not only is it epidemic it's just kind of eh, you know apathy it's that generation views it with just a level of apathy that everyone's doing it it's just something you do and 
again, I come at it, you know, for, in the chapter I write on it with just loads of information that mom is going to really need a nap after this because <laughs> – yeah. I'd say a drink, but we're all Christians, so we're not going to talk about <laughs> yeah. that. But anyway, you know, in, in the sense that she's going to read a lot of scary statistics, yeah. but I think that's good for us to know what the, you know, how big the problem is, how pervasive yes. it is. But I'm going to give her tools to have some really awesome, candid conversations with her son, especially about the brain chemistry stuff. Mm -hmm. Because my youngest son, he said, mom, that stuff you shared with me was terrifying. And I'm like, oh, good, good. You know, when I would tell him that, you know, things like this could impact your sexual intimacy in marriage, it will at Mm -hmm. some point. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we have, you know, skyrocketing you know, numbers of men now, young men in their late 20s with erectile dysfunction. Where do you think that's coming from? Exactly. So I don't know if we're allowed to talk about things like that on your show, but we'll just throw that out there. Yeah, put it out there. Again, just let's connect the dots here. And so I'm just honest. I was honest with my boys and I found that, you know, if you shared with them, okay, these are things, choices you make today could impact you know, your sexual intimacy in marriage on down the road. Mm -hmm. And so even though my son, his struggle continued, it was a factor in him. He remembered those things and he wanted to get help Mm -hmm. and he wanted to get help before the consequences were even more severe. (laughs) Yeah, that's so good. And so bringing it to light, which is what is needed. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Rebel Parenting. Hey Rebels, this portion of the podcast is brought to you by our friends at Save the Storks. Save the Storks helps moms with an unplanned pregnancy, and that's my story. I was an unplanned pregnancy. My birth mom was 16 and faced an uphill battle, and a pregnancy resource center in her area helped her carry me all the way to fruition and then helped adopt me into my family. And Save the Storks helps pregnancy resource centers across the country with stork buses providing mobile ultrasound machines where four out of five moms choose life after seeing their baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat. Over 6,000 babies have been saved on stork buses. Please support Save the Storks with your prayers and visit savethestorks.com to become a monthly sponsor. Join the movement and help us revolutionize the meaning of pro-life. For more information, visit SaveTheStorks.com. Welcome back to Rebel Parenting. Did you miss us? Let's keep moving on. Because we could stay on that one. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so much. So that, yeah, the next conversation is have a little sex respect. And so this is where, of course, we're, you know, I cover everything from, you know, at what age do you start introducing the whole topic of sex and what is sex? Mm -hmm. And I share some scary statistics in that conversation as well, just in regard to actually evangelical teens, I hate to tell you, are more likely to have sex than, um, yes, more likely to lose their virginity than mainline Protestants, Catholics, and at a slightly younger age. So, you know, the percentages are not far off from Mm. those who are not being raised in the church, who don't identify with being a Christian teenager. Mm. And so I know that's discouraging for a lot of moms to hear, 
But again, I tackle that really in much the same fashion that I did the conversation related to pornography, a lot of honesty about, Mm -hmm. you know, STDs and how prevalent those are, you know, consequences on down the road when making that choice. But, you know, also acknowledging at the same time that whether we want to believe our child is going to be among the statistic or not, the sad truth is the majority of teens will go to the altar, you know, Mm -hmm. and not have their virginity intact. And so we need to also be um, mindful of that along the way. So we're not raising them and having these conversations like good Christian teenagers don't do these things or good Christian kids don't do these things. Therefore, I'm going to pretend like you're never going to do those Mm -hmm. things. And we're not going to talk about, you know, anything else related to it, because that's the other thing that surveys are showing is they are the least educated when it comes to, you know, everything from STDs, pregnancy, health risk, you know, all of that. So we need to be having a lot of Mm. additional conversations about those things as well. There's too much on the line. In fact, one fourth of all teenage girls now has an STD. Oh, no. Oi. Just let that sit on you for a little bit. Right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you're saying that in the evangelical world that the majority of people are uneducated about yes. the teens. Hmm. Yes, because the parents by and large are treating it as something their kids are not supposed to do, so they go as far as to say you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, you know, don't sure. have sex outside of marriage, but they don't go beyond that. The why? The majority or the consequences and right. Yeah, right. and the beauty yeah. if you wait. Right. That's One article that I read said and I love this quote. It's not my quote, but I thought it was wonderful. It said evangelical teens don't accept themselves as people who will have sex until they've already had it. Oh, oh. so, Whoa. you know, they don't go into it looking to lose their virginity. In other words, it's like it's for most of them. It's going to be a situation they find themselves in, whether it's a dating relationship or whatever. And they're not necessarily intending to do that. Whereas if you're not being raised in the church and you don't have the moral compass to say this is wrong, then you're like, well, you just think it's a natural part of a dating relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. But for the Christian teenager, that's or the teenager, I should say, that's being raised in a solid Christian home, they've been taught, you know, the Bible and what God has to say about these things and uh, why it's a good idea, or maybe they're not being told why it's a good idea yeah. to save sex you're just being told save sex for marriage just don't and so, <laughs> just don't right and so i think we're finding that there's been some fallout yeah you know that in the sense of you know they're young christian marrieds now that have a lot of shame attached to sex yes. because you know mom and dad didn't really take time to sit down with them and explain well sex is actually a very beautiful thing that god created mm-hmm. and you know Basically, God gave sex to husbands and wives as a way to, you know, bring them together and the two can become one and all those wonderful verses that support that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they heard just don't do it so much that there was just a lot of shame attached to it. And, you know, or they didn't hear any information regarding health risk and pregnancy Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I can vouch for that one because during these years, I w- where there was just a lot of misinformation, or I should say no information, mm. I was having conferences for teenage girls across the country, holding them, you know, 12 plus a year. And, you know, and typically myself and my teaching team, we would have these girls crying on our shoulder. A lot of them, you know, they were either pregnant or they thought that they might be pregnant. Mm-hmm. They were having sex and they, but my parents have no idea. And, you know, and I'm afraid I'm going to get pregnant. And so, you know, again, these are all conversations that mm. 
we need to be having, but we first need to pull our heads out of the sand and make sure we're not living in la-la land thinking, oh, well, of course, my good Christian children are going to fall into the small 10% category that does not have sex by the end of their college years. Right. Just assume that and, your kids are going to, and then you'll be more equipped to handle, to deal yeah, with and it. You know, it's, tr- it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, because you it don't is. want to put the kids down and go, hey, I know you're probably going to do this. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, then it's like you're handing them a free pass saying, okay, you know, everyone's doing it. Right, right. And so you present a case to them. And again, having those conversations over and over again, reminding them, but also, I think it's important that we validate along the way. Well, of course, you know, teenagers want to have sex, yeah. you know, and <laughs> this is our sin nature, right? I mean, and we gravitate toward things that are pleasurable. And so, you know, not making it sound like it's so evil and shameful that, you know, how could anyone who knows God even consider it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the way I address the pornography thing with uh, situation or yeah. issue with my sons as well. I was like, I could totally see where a young man or boy would want to look at pornography you know it's enticing and it's pleasurable and you know that's our sin nature to want to indulge in those things and you know by validating that then they don't feel like they're some sort of freak like oh wow well you know why am i feeling this way and yeah Yeah. all right so number four (laughs) (laughs) oh boy this is another one that I loved writing for, especially this, you know, the book on raising sons. Uh, but childhood is only for a season. Mm-hmm. And this is where I talk a lot about just the failure to launch syndrome mm-hmm. that we see today among our young men, especially. And, you know, the studies out there show that our girls are able to grow up and adult at a much higher percentage than our young men are. And our young men are typically coming back home, a lot of them, and wanting to live with mom and dad. And so we need to, you know, we I really tap into, you know, what's going on there. And I look a lot at just this whole idea of parents need to be more intentional when it comes to having a launch plan mm. for mm. really the sons and daughters. But for our sons, you know, we need to make sure that we're intentional about a pre-launch. So I break it up into pre-launch, I think a test launch and a final launch phase. And then for some parents, if their sons come back home after adulthood or what we consider adult to be, then you're stuck in the relaunch phase. You've got to go back and relaunch your son again. (laughs) I have a lot of friends doing this right now. You know, their sons came back after college or in their thirties. And so they're left with the task of relaunching them. And, you know, so this is something that has become more difficult for our boys. And, you know, the statistics just shooting way up there for the number of young men that are coming back home. And so again, just giving moms just ways they can be more intentional, making sure that you're not rescuing your son in the sense of letting them experience some consequences of failure along the way, not picking up the pieces for them all the time or making it too easy for them. Mm. But also, you know, teaching them responsibility early on, whether it's financial responsibility, you know, keeping up with chores, having responsibilities around the home. You know, even the whole idea of a summer job, I was shocked that the number of teens that had a summer job in 1980, I believe it was, 70% of teenagers had a summer job in 1980. In 2010, it was 43%. Oh, no. Do you think that that's a rise of after school activities or sports and all that? 
Okay, so here's what I was shocked about because that was exactly my first thought. I was like, oh, well, look how busy they are. You know, back in my day, you know, we didn't have all this, you know, club soccer, yeah. club everything, you know, weekend stuff. And so a lot of parents argued that due and also due to more stringent college requirements on top of all the yes, extracurriculars, yeah. that's all tied in together because colleges want to see, mm-hmm. right, a lot of extracurriculars too. So it all blends in. And then they add in, you know, the heavy load of homework. This is actually, it's not really much different than it was before. In fact, it was, I believe, Jean Twinge, and she's an expert on, really, she studied all the generations and such, and she found that she analyzed the data and found that high school seniors heading to college, and this was in 2015, spent fewer hours a week on homework, paid work, volunteer work and extracurricular activities during that last year in high school than those entering college in 1987. Mm. So that theory shot, you know, it's not, I think it is a perception that's out there, but it's a false perception that our kids are busier, that they have more homework, but she did make the connection saying that what's eating up their leisure time is what do you think? The screen. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. Screen time. And so, you know, a lot of times parents aren't factoring that into the equation. They're just seeing their kids are swamped. They're busy. And once you start adding up all the time they're actually spending on screens, that's time that could be better spent doing exactly a part-time job that would be far more beneficial on a resume than, hey, by the way, I spend 30 hours a week on my, you know, on social media. (laughs) I don't see a lot of employers being super impressed by that unless you're looking for maybe a marketing job at some point. But (laughs) that to me was, um, and I've I've brought that up in talking to a lot of parents today and they're like, well, I'd love for my, you know, teenager to get a job, but there's just, it's so hard today with homework. And I'm like, yeah, actually. And then (laughs) I'm like, Debbie you know, yeah. uh, this is true. So, right. but you know, part of that in that conversation too, I talk a lot about along the same lines as, as just misunderstanding with summer jobs and such. Yes. We coddle our kids so much today, so much more today. I, I mean, I know my generation, we were kind of like latchkey kids. It was like, just, you know, keep yourself alive by the time we get home from work. And that's your, <laughs> that's your job. Yeah. Love. That is it, you know, try not to burn the house down when you're making your instant macaroni and cheese or whatever after school and watching Gilligan's Island. But, you know, it's just so very small goals. <laughs> Me too. It's great, right? Yeah. But anyway, uh, today it's like, you know, there's all this hovering. And, and that was hard because, you know, as I'm writing those chapters, I'm thinking I'm busted on a lot of levels here too, that at times I was that hovering helicopter mom that, you know, and I our motives are so pure. I mean, we want our children to have a better childhood than maybe what we had. And so yeah. we hover and we protect and we don't want them to experience the unpleasantries of life. But yet a lot of what grows them up and part of that launching them into adulthood is allowing them to have some challenges. Yes. And, you know, one of the things, so for example, that I was super, super shocked at was, um, just the percentage of kids, if I can find this, who walked home from school back in, you know, it, I think here it is. So 1969, 48% of elementary and middle school students walked or rode a bicycle to school. So we're, this is elementary school yeah, students. So- now you think about where you live in your neighborhood. How many elementary students do you see walking and riding their bikes to school? Certainly not 50% no. one an hour yeah. every two and then by 2009, it was only 13% did so. And among those who live less than a mile from the school, 35% rode their bicycle to school in 2009 as compared to 
1969. And so, you know, really there, I think parents, they would argue, well, the world was a much safer place than, no, that is not true either. That is also also a misconception Mm. that is actually safer today for our children than it was when we were growing up. Mm. Mm, That's a great thing to hear. It is. Well, it is. It's because you you think about all the, you know, safety requirements that are out there. And Mm. yeah, uh, I mean, I grew up going to the park and everything was metal, you know, and I lived in Dallas, Texas, and it was hot. blazing hot in the summer. <laughs> and so part of being a kid was second degree burns on the back of your legs going down that metal slide, you know, <laughs> and do you remember the slide was also like the stairway to heaven? Yes, I mean, it, it was, was tall, so, no guardrails, hardly just some handles to get you up there. And once you were up there, you know, you better stay on your bottom to get down there because, mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be in the ER or whatever, and then that merry-go-round oh, is yeah. terrific. A, a wheel of death is what <laughs> I call wheel, it. Yeah, <laughs> take out kids They're, left and right. You know, right, exactly. And the monkey bars, I mean, you won't see any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. They're all gone. You've got the little soft play yards, you yeah. know, and all that, the rubber yeah. asphalt stuff. And so it's, you know, again, I think that's all great. I'm all for that. You know, in our generation, we weren't throwing bike helmets on. We're standing up in the backs of pickup trucks, which is a terrible idea. And, you know, so I'm right. certainly not... I'm not, you know, supporting any of that. that. Yes. I'm saying, you know, that a lot of times I think we think it's so much more dangerous today to be a kid. And that's absolutely not true. Yet we are more overprotective today of our children than our parents were back then. Yes, and I agree. This is having, you know, some consequences on our children in the sense of growing up and they're going off to college and mom and dad are going and sitting in on the, you know, orientation and they're the ones going up and asking questions to the dean at the, you know, yeah. so colleges are saying enough already, yeah. you know, they're seeing it. So. Yeah. Well, and it kind of ties into, you mentioned, you quoted a John Eldridge quote, just talking about how boys just need that wild sense of adventure. And yeah. I have three boys and one girl and my husband will call me out, whether out loud or he'll give me a look if I'm like, oh, guys, just be careful. Maybe not. Don't do that. Like, and he's like, just chill out. You got to let the boys be a boy. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it could be, you know, let's climb this tree and then see if we could hop to the next branch. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yes, I know the stuff they do. I mean, I I can't remember if it was this book or I have another book called Your Boy Raising a Godly Son in an Ungodly World. And one of those books I shared how I came home one afternoon and my boys were at the top of our driveway and we have a long sloping downhill driveway that goes on for a while and then rams you into the garage, the metal garage door. But they were flying down that hill, taking turns with a lot of neighbor bo- other neighbor boys in my office chair. Oh, yeah. That sounds about okay, sounds so that's, <laughs> you know, That supports several things there. The lack of frontal lobe development, yeah. the inability to connect, you know, oh, if I go down this hill, right. you know, at rocket chair. speed, then I could break bones. <laughs> it just the whole boys being boys in the sense of, you know, and of course you can imagine I pulled up and went crazy and my sons are just like, Oh mom, you know, no big deal. And again, they need a little adventure. Yeah. As scary as it is for moms to stand by and watch, they need some adventure. I do. I love that. And we're very similar. I mean, our, we are so blessed to have a school right near our house and our kids walk to school and it took me a while to let go of just the worry of them walking home, but good Lordy, there's 50 other kids walking with them (laughs) and there's a crosswalk guy in the middle 
like checking on him. So it was just one of those like, oh, yeah, just let them be a kid and let them meander on home. If they stop by the neighbor's house, it's usually a text from the mom of, oh, hey, three of your kids are here. And Mm -hmm. that's still, you know, we grew up and it was a little bit even more freedom than that, probably. But that's so great for them to taste that. And I brag on my daughter-in-law, my son here. My oldest grandchild is seven. He's in first grade and he walks home from school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my daughter-in-law said not a lot of moms are really allowing their kids to do this, Mm -hmm. but she allows her son to do it. And he's super responsible. We all joke that he literally could babysit. (laughs) the other four grandkids and you would all be fine, you know, but she also gave him the mail key. So every day that's like part of his job is on his way home. He stops and he gets the mail from the, you know, we have the the community mailbox thing. And, and so he feels like he has a responsibility or a chore. And, you know, I think it's great, you know, seven years old. So Mm -hmm. your moms are listening that they've got the 14, 17 year old and they're still not letting him walk home. (laughs) (laughs) Remember my seven year old grandson is doing this. Your son can do it too. Yes. Live ten miles from the school, maybe not a good idea. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. True. That'd be one one good bike ride. Yeah, <laughs> right. All right. Remember we had to. They might. Your grandmother and I walked to school in the snow. Right. You know, blah blah yeah. blah. But anyway. <laughs> not uh, Texas, not. So just talk about the last conversation, and then we'll we'll probably sign off. But this one's so important that you are who you yeah. are, have been becoming. Mm. Yes, you are who you've been becoming. And this is where I really and I wanted to, you know, end the book with the best stuff in the sense of the spiritual development of your children. And so I talk a lot about just how do we pass down a legacy of prayer and a love of God's word and what does it look like to, you know, be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, and I share the hope with parents that all these scary things that we've talked about and statistics that make it sound like at times that, you know, our Christian kids, are they really much different than anyone, any other just average teenager in America that's not going to church. Mm -hmm. The hope in all this, and I share in this conversation, is that there was one category of teenagers that really stood out, and they're called engaged Christian teens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what really set that category apart was the fact that engaged Christian teens had engaged Christian parents who were very intentional when it came to talking about the dynamics of faith, just everything we've talked about today, Mm -hmm. not being afraid to tackle, you know, head on issues that they're facing in the culture and unpacking it even together when you don't have the answers. And, you know, that's one thing I'd want the moms to and dads to know that are listening is that, you know, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as parents that we have to have the answers and Mm -hmm. your kids are going to have, if they're comfortable and you're raising them to know they have freedom to come to you and talk about anything under the sun, they may ask some really shocking questions Mm -hmm. at times. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we don't have to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what I'd share as an encouragement to the parents listening is that it's it's okay to say, you know, I'm really, I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but let's see if we can't find out together. Let's, you know, open up the Bible. Let's see what we can find there. And so making it a project so your child sees too that this is a method for discovering, you know, how does God instruct us to live in challenging times Mm -hmm. and, and reminding them that, the Bible is their instruction manual for life. And I talk a lot in that conversation too, because I think that what's different about this generation of kids, the Gen Z kids growing up, than maybe, you know, a generation or two before them is that this is the first generation of kids growing up in what they call post-Christian America. And right. it's sad to hear that, but it's true. 
And so, you know, we need to go about it a little bit differently in the way they even engage with their peers. And so I talk a lot in this conversation about what it looks like to walk in truth, you know, as an individual follower of Jesus Christ, but to lead with love. Mm. And I feel like that that love aspect has been lacking maybe in years past, maybe, you know, in my generation and such that we were really good at pointing the finger and, you know, demanding that people walk in truth and, um, quoting Bible verses and all of this, but we lacked the love. Yeah. And I think we can do a much better job with our kids at, you know, not in any way diluting the truth because the truth is the truth. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so teaching our children the truth, but also making sure that we're never coming at it from an us and them sort of, you know, well, here's how good Christians behave. And some of your friends may be doing this and this and this. And, you know, we all know that half the time or nine times out of 10, the Christian kids are doing that too. And your kids may be one of them. Mm -hmm. And so let's not be naive enough to think that, you know, it's us versus them and all of that, that, you know, we're all in this together, all but for the grace of God, go each and every one of us. And that's the type of Christian I wanted to raise into adulthood. And I think all three of my kids are very loving in the way that they engage others that don't hold their same beliefs. And and I don't take full credit for that in any way, but I hope, you know, and I really, if anything, I shared um, in a previous book I'd written to women, I'm a recovering legalist. And so just don't <laughs> say, you know, say that jokingly, but I am, and I'm still recovering. Yeah. But, I, you know, I wrote a good part of one of my books on that, and I came clean with my kids about it, too, because I look back on, you know, things that I would say that were so harsh. It sounded so harsh and so unloving. And, you know, and I think just in being honest and vulnerable with them hopefully has helped them to see too how easily we can fall into that and be that sort of pharisaical Christian that is always talking about everybody else doing everything wrong, you know, and not paying attention to the log in our own eye. Right. Wow. He gave us a lot to think about. I know. (laughs) A lot to digest. It's It's so meaty and so good to have tools to just sink our teeth in as Mm -hmm. moms and how to talk to our sons and previously about how to talk to our daughters. And yeah, it's a great resource. So Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you all for having me back. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks to Vicki for sharing all of her wisdom to us. Thanks to The Voice of the Martyrs for sponsoring this podcast. Persecution.com, The Voice of the Martyrs, helping those being persecuted for our gospel for more than 50 years. And Blinkist, Blinkist.com slash Rebel Parenting for a free week. B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com. They are 15-minute summaries of nonfiction books. I love this service. God bless Rebels. We'll see you soon. Rebel Parenting is produced by Rebel Media House. And when you need a little help with your marriage or parenting, and everyone does, you can find it at rebelparenting.org. Sign up for the Rebel Update by texting the word REBEL to 444-999. That's R-E-B-E-L, and the number is 444-999. We love it when you share Rebel Parenting with your friends and family, so thank you. God bless. Thanks for spending your time with us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Rebel Parenting.